Good morning. Glad you guys are with us. My name is John. I'm one of the elders and pastors here. Normally you'll hear Sean Myers, who's our lead teaching pastor and lead pastor, um, but from time to time you hear an elder come up and, and teach, and so you're stuck with me this morning. <laughs> Don't, yeah, okay. Um, Sean's, Sean's back there in third to fifth grade, so if you have kids back there, um, let's pray. Let's pray right now for them. And uh, No, seriously, let's pray, though. Not because of that, but let's pray that God would... Uh, Show us what he wants to show us in the text this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for your goodness and your truth. Thanks for God um, that, lo- that you love us, that you secure us in the cross. I pray you would illuminate this text to us this morning. Help us hear what you want us to hear. Spirit, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds. Make it clear how we need to follow you. We love and trust you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, the letter that a man named Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. He started the church there, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 19. Spent about two years there, and then felt the Lord calling him to continue to plant churches. So he left, and about 10 years after leaving Ephesus, he finds himself in prison in Rome, and he writes a letter back to the church in Ephesus. That's some of the context of what we're reading, and it's this um, beautiful six-chapter letter, um, and at the beginning of the six chapters, he gives a greeting, the first two verses, he greets who he is and why he's writing, and then verses 3 through 14, we've talked about it already, but it's actually in the original language, which is the Greek language it was written in, it's actually one sentence. It's one super long run-on sentence. It's kind of like if I'm meeting somebody for the first time and they haven't met my wife and I'm describing my wife to them, I start talking about how amazing she is, how beautiful she is, not just on the outside, but on the inside. And I'm just going on and on and on and on. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's talking about God and he's saying, this God of the Bible, and he's going on and on and on into this one huge long sentence in this first chunk of his opening to this letter to the people in Ephesus. And it has a Trinitarian nature. We believe the Bible talks about one God in three specific natures, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in verse 4 through 6, you see him talking about being chosen for adoption by the Father. Verses 7 through 10, which we covered last week, talks about being redeemed for the unity of the Son, by the Son. And then verses 11 through 14, which we'll start today, talks about being sealed for the inheritance by the Spirit's. And the way this section reads, these verses 3 through 14, this one long, long sentence, and, um, it's almost hard to read it all in one sitting. It's kind of like if you go, um, any of you go to Cheesecake Factory? Che- I'm, I'm, I like Cheesecake Factory. Cheesecake's not my favorite, favorite dessert, but I do enjoy it. But I can't eat more than one cheesecake slice at a time, right? Like, can you imagine sitting down and having to eat a whole cheesecake in one sitting? Although it's good, it's just so rich and dense and full. And that's kind of what is happening here in these beginning verses. Paul is laying out so much deep, rich, theological truth, it's almost hard to stomach in one sitting. And that's why we're taking it a couple verses at a time. But don't forget, it's all a part of the same sentence. It's really, really important that we get that, that we not compartmentalize compartmentalize these couple verses. So anytime you study the Bible, anytime you read the Bible, you need to remember the three C's 
of biblical interpretation. The three C's of biblical interpretation, you know these three C's, right? Context, context, and context, right? And any time you read the Bible or any type of communication, context is really, really important. The Bible is no exception to that. Say we were reading a book together, all of us, and it was about this man named Jason. And in the book we read, Jason goes to work, and on break he goes to the water cooler, and he starts talking to his coworkers, and he says, Man, can you believe what Trump said last night? Now, to understand what Jason is communicating, we need to understand context for that sentence, right? Is Jason, is this book being written in 2007? And Jason is saying, can you believe what the host of The Apprentice said last night, Donald Trump? Or is it being written in 2017 and Jason is saying, man, can you believe what Trump said last night in his run to be president. That changes, that context changes the way we understand the question that Jason is asking. And so I want to remind us of our context. John did a great job when we introduced Ephesians, but some of the context that we're finding here, and I think it'll really help us understand more of what Paul is trying to communicate to the original hearers in verses 3 through 14. Because if you remember Ephesians, Ephesus, sorry, Ephesus is the name of the city. It's modern-day Turkey now, but it was a major port city. So different people of different races, different cultures were all kind of crammed into this area, this big city. One commentator, commentator I, wrote, or I read this week saw, talked about it being like the city of Manhattan. It was massive, the city of Ephesus. And the philosophical and theological culture at the time was dominated. It was dominated by the Greek and Roman culture. And we've talked about this already, but there was a goddess named Artemis. And they built a temple to her. Look at this thing, man. This is the third installment of the temple to Artemis. It's one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. The pyramids make that list too. This temple makes that list in the city of Ephesus. I mean, this thing was huge. It was 420 feet long, 225 feet wide. These columns are 120 columns. They reach 60 feet in the air. Artemis was a big deal to the culture in the city of Ephesus. So to understand Artemis, we have to understand a little bit of Greek mythology, of understanding what does Greek mythology really teach? What is it, what is it that Greek mythology has to say to us? And I was talking to my sons, uh, one is 14 and one is almost 13, and prepping for this time this week, and we started talking about what they know about Greek mythology, because I know they study it in school, and I'm talking to my son, Logan, who's 12, and I'm like, tell me about Artemis, what do you know? And I'm saying, this is what I found out. He's like, no, 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 that's wrong. He's correcting me. He's like, Artemis was like this. And I was like, how do you know all this stuff? He was like, I read Percy Jackson. It's clear, you know? I read about all these Greek gods and goddesses and things. I was like, okay. So then I talked to my other son, Carson. I said, Carson, if you really thought Greek mythology was real, like these gods are real, how, how would that affect you? How would you live your life? And he was like, man, that would be terrible. <laughs> He's like, I just feel like the Greek gods is like teenagers. It's like drama all the time. It's like, that's, that's actually a pretty accurate statement, you know? Because it was the way that Greek mythology is set up. It was constant, constant drama. 
right? And if you're familiar, if you rewind back to high school, if you can remember Greek mythology, one of the most famous stories in Greek mythology is the story of Prometheus, right? Do you remember this? He's a titan, and he actually is kind of for the mortals, kind of for mankind, and he steals fire, and he actually gives it to mankind. And Zeus, the head of the god, he does not like this at all, right? Because he wants to keep all the power. He's kind of fickle and prideful, and so what he does is he punishes Prometheus. He chains him to this rock. And every day an eagle with an emblem of Zeus comes and eats the liver of Prometheus every day because in the ancient world, the liver was like the seed of the emotions, right? It's like how we talk about the heart. We're not talking about our physical heart. We're talking about all of us. The liver was all of you. And so every day this hawk would come and it would eat the liver and then the liver would grow back. And then it would come again. And just to torture Prometheus. Why is he torturing him? Because Prometheus was good to mankind. He shared something with mankind. How do you think that affects the readers of this letter that live in an uber-Greek mythological context? How would it affect you if you had to live with gods that you were always kind of looking over your shoulder going, did I do it right? I don't want to upset the gods. The goddess of Artemis in the Ephesian culture, she was the goddess of fertility. So you would bring your gifts to the temple because you want to have a baby. You want to have life. I don't think it's any exception that Paul uses the word adoption on purpose in this text. Because what I think he's really doing is he is comparing and contrasting. He's saying, listen, I remember this goddess of Artemis. I remember the temple. And in Acts chapter 19, you can see when Paul um, makes a convert and this guy quits doing what he's doing, making these statues of Artemis. And there's kind of this riot and uprising. The people of, um, the Ephesian people, they go and they chant, great is Artemis of, not Ephesians, Ephesus. There it is. Great is Artemis of Ephesus. They chant it for two hours straight, they chant it. I think Paul is remembering that moment. He writes this letter back in his beginning intro, adoring God. He is putting Artemis, this goddess of the Greeks, up against the God of the Bible. He's saying, listen, there's no comparison. You're going to go to Artemis for life? For ad- there's no comparison in what this God of the Bible will show you and how he loves you. And so that's the context that we're dropping into in this book of Ephesians. So we we don't worship the goddess of Artemis, right? What do we worship? What, What would Paul say to us today? Because the Bible is living and active and it has a word for us today. What would Paul debate? He's not debating Artemis against the God of the Bible. He's debating the God of the Bible against what in our culture? What are the idols in our culture? I think there's a lot of things he could be debating. I think one of the primary things he would be debating is the idol of consumerism, right? We've talked about this from the stage. We can't help but be consumers, but are we trapped in an idol of consumerism? It is the water we swim in in our culture, and you can just see it. Everything is geared toward you. It's about, it's, it's about me. Everything's for me. If I don't get what I want, you know what? I'm going to go over here because they're going to cater to my needs and I'm going to get what I want. 
So I think Paul would argue against the idol of consumerism. And I think this idol creeps in and seeps into Christianity, our modern-day version of how we view God. Does any, um, anybody watch Sling? Any Sling people in here? So Sling is like a, um, you know, you got Netflix and Hulu, and now there's Sling. It's like the new thing where um, I don't need 200 cable channels. I just don't because I won't watch 200. I'll watch like seven of them. And Sling is a la carte TV, right? That's their kind of tagline is you can kind of pick ESPN, and you can pick this show, like this network, and then you pay for that premium. Have you seen these um, commercials that Sling is running now? Uh, one of the commercials is this man behind a bar and this, um, well, one's behind a bar, one's, he's a barista, he's serving coffee, and this girl comes up and she's ordering this detailed order for coffee. It's really, really um, intricate and exact, and he looks at the camera, he says, you can be picky about your coffee, why can't you be picky about your TV? Have you seen this, right? And so that gets seeped into our version of American Christianity all the time, right? You can be picky about your coffee, why can't you be picky about God? You know, I like this part of God, but I don't really like this part of God in the Bible. And I'm just going to take this part, and I'm just going to take this part. And I think that's extremely dangerous to do. And Paul fights against it, as we're going to see here in verse 11 and 12. So if you don't already have a Bible, please um, open up a Bible. If you need a Bible, those Bibles outside of this auditorium, please take that and keep it. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to have you have one um, to read that. So... Chapter 1, verse 11, says this, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time, just so you know, on verse 11. Um, Verses 12 and 13 kind of go together. Um, so even if you look at 12, it says, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then 13, he talks about, and you Gentiles. So the first to hope in Christ is actually a nod to the nation of Israel, that God calls these people to himself. In Genesis chapter 12, he calls a man, Abraham, and he says, listen, you are going to be my nation. When people look at you, they're going to see me, and they're going to begin to worship me. So that's what he means by first hope in Christ. And Sean will kind of pick that up in in verse 13 because 13 and 12 are kind of connected. So I'm going to spend the bulk of my time in verse 11, and specifically the beginning of verse 11. The first two verses, in him, start to butt up right against our own version of consumer Christianity. And if you look at the totality of verses 3 through 14, I want you to notice the pronouns in verses 3 through 14. Look at what this says. Go ahead, Mernon. Put up the 3 through 14. No, that's not it. Keep, there it is. Okay. Look at this and how it butts up against the it's all about me consumeristic mentality. Listen to what he says. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Okay, so he establishes in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at how the pronouns start. Verse 4. Even as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. I don't know what version of Christianity you got sold when you started looking at the claims of Christ, but if it's any version where, you know what, I need God to go to heaven, 
and that's why I want him, and then I'm going to do whatever else I want, and God's good, like, it's just for me, it's good for you. That is not biblical Christianity. It's not about your will, it's about his will. We're in a high school, I don't know if you know this, if you're new here, this this is a high school, Centennial High School, so... Um, we're only here on Sunday mornings. All this stuff comes up, comes down every week. If you want to help, that's great. We always need help. Um, and I'm usually the first one here. And I walked in today. You never know what's going to happen like a dragon behind stage. It's just, it makes it interesting every time you come here. Um, and I walked in this morning, and there are these hearts, like, plastered all over the wall um, for Valentine's Day, I assume. So we tore them all off because Valentine's Day is over. But I kept this one. You know what it says on it? Do what makes you happy. Do what, do what, Manny, do what makes you happy, man. Just do what makes you happy. Is there anything wrong with being happy? No, not at all. But if this is your mantra, and I don't know who wrote this and why they wrote it, but that's just consumerism. Just do you. Just do what's good for you. And what Paul is telling us here in these in hymns is that's not what the Bible says. It's actually about God. It's not about you. It's about God. Let's keep going. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. So you're redeemed not because you show up to church, not because you're a good person, not because you're nice to your neighbors. None of that. It's in him. He's the one that redeems you. By his blood, not by what you bring to the table. Verse 8, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He's making all things right again in him. Verse 11, where we started, in him. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of whose will? His will. By his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13. In him also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we require, acquire possession of it to the praise of his Glory, men and women. The Bible is not about you. And it's hard because we can read that with consumeristic lenses on and we can go, man, he loves me. He loves me. He loves He does. He does. That's why it's tricky because he does love you, but it's for his praise. It's for his glory. And this phrase in him that we keep seeing, in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? Christ. I think this is really, really important for us to understand and unpack. This is maybe the most important thing you've ever decided. I think he is specifically using this phrase, in Christ or in him, in comparison to being in Adam. Right? So Genesis chapter 3, if you're new to Christianity, Genesis chapter 3, God makes everything good and beautiful and perfect in 1 and 2 of Genesis. And then chapter 3, he makes men and women with a choice, and they choose not to follow God. They choose to do their own thing. They get tricked into believing this lie that their way is better than God's way. And there's terrible results. 
There's the consequences of what the Bible calls sin. And now we are born into that sin. We are born into that reality. Even if you're not a Christian, we can all put our hands in the air and go, I'm not perfect. That imperfection is what the Bible calls sin. And so now we are born into an inheritance in Adam. And it's not until God changes our hearts, calls us, wakes us up from a dead place, which we'll see in Ephesians 2, that we can begin to understand this goodness of God. And then when we choose to say, yes, I would follow you, Jesus, everything changes. You are now positionally changed to being in Christ, in him, when you say, God, I need you. I believe in what Jesus has done on the cross for me. I need that. And it's only for your glory. Then you move positionally from being in Adam to being in him, regardless of how you feel about it. That's the truth of the Bible. And again, think through the context of the people that are hearing this for the first time. Right? This idea, verse 11, in him we've been obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of of his will. Think of the intentional language that Paul is using, this idea of an inheritance, which we think of like this big sum of money, which is, is not really what he's talking about. Inheritance was connected much more in biblical times to the land. You inherit something right away. It's your, your life, your security. And Paul is saying we have security in Christ, having been predestined. So it's not like these gods that are Greek that could be happy one minute and mad the next minute. Actually, God predestined this. Before you did anything, he set it in motion. How comforting would that be to hear? You don't have to look over your shoulder right and left. It's not based on your behavior, but it's based on your belief and your position in Christ. We have some friends that... Um, adopted a son when he was about three years old. So they didn't adopt him at birth. He was three. Um, they adopted him. His name's Deshaun. They prayed about it a ton, felt like the Lord was leading them to adopt. And so they adopted Deshaun. He's about seven now. They have him around four years. And it's, it's just been hard. Um, it's been difficult. It's been hard to figure out how do, we, how, how do they love Deshaun? How do they parent him? How do they correct him? Because he had a really, really hard background um, when they chose to say, you're going to be our son. We're going to love you. We're going to care for you. And so one of the things that they've been doing recently is um, they've been taking Deshaun to therapy. And my wife and I last week were um, in California. We happened to stop at this pastor's forum, and Dr. Dan Allender was there, who's a psychologist and a Christian author. And he was talking about neuroscience and the brain and how amazing right now that scientists are finding out about how our brains work. Um, Kurt Thompson is another scholar in this area. If, you haven't, if you're curious in this, I would highly um, recommend his book, Anatomy of the Soul. And he talks, he's out of D.C., he specifically talks about how your brain chemistry and what your brain is doing and in, in your anatomy is changing and how it's connected to what the Bible teaches. It's really, really fascinating stuff. Um, and one of the things that we were talking about last week is the issue of trauma how you deal with trauma in your brain, what actually happens to the effects of your brain with trauma, especially at a young age. 
And the effects of trauma at a young age tend to reside in the nonverbal areas of your brain, the hippocampus and the amygdala, right? So it's kind of housed in one area when you experience trauma, especially from a young age. And a person's ability and capacity to communicate and process the adverse issues actually resides in a different part of your brain, into the frontal lobe. So you've got all this trauma kind of packed back here, and then you have this area where you can articulate it in this other part of your brain. And so that's when you see little kids act out that have been through trauma, and they can't articulate what they're feeling. They hit somebody, right? So it's really interesting how um, science is beginning to understand how the brain works in correlation with trauma. Well, one of the things they're finding and studies are showing that play therapy, when you play and you do stuff, it, it activates, actually unlocks part of that part of your brain to get to the frontal lobe. So now you can articulate what you're feeling. It's really fascinating stuff. And so our friends took their son, Deshaun, um, to a play therapy session recently. And so it kind of looks like a room like this. And Deshaun walks in and plays, and um, there's a sandbox over there to, on the corner of the screen. And this was specifically this exercise the therapist did with Deshaun was sand therapy. And she said, okay, Deshaun, whenever you're ready, here's what I want you to do. She drew a line in the sandbox. She said, on this left side, I want you to, I want you to show me how you think um, uh, you view yourself. And so in sand therapy, you can't really see in the pictures, but there's all these figurines and these little toys you can play with and set up scenes. And so it's okay. So on this side of the sandbox, I want you to build a scene for me of how you view yourself. Now on this side, on the right side, here's what I want you to do. I want you to build a scene of how others view you. Okay, that's what she said to him. She said, you can start whenever you want. It took about five minutes. And our, our friend, the mom, was in there, and she's like, this is taking forever. She's like, I don't think he's going to do it. The counselor just slowly let him do it at his own time, and he started building. He started building on this left side of how he thinks, sorry, how he thinks other people, or how he, he views himself. He had this swing set, this little toy swing set in the middle of the sand. And he had these animals surrounding the swing set. So the therapist says, Deshaun, tell me, Tell me about what's, what's going on here. What's, what's going on in this scene? And so he says, well, they're all here together. They're a family. And he points at a specific item. It's a dog, which kind of represents him. And he says, but this one's sad. So the therapist says, well, why, why is this dog sad? He says, well, he broke something. And because he broke something, he broke this swing. Because he broke something, he has to go to a different family. He has to get a new owner. So the therapist kind of lets him say that. She says, well, Deshaun, how, do, how, does, how does this dog like his new owner? Oh, he likes his new owner. Yeah, he really likes his new owner, but it feels like if he breaks something, he's having to get another owner. And our friend's heart, the mom just, her, her heart just dropped. That she's seeing that Deshaun believes that his behavior dictates whether she or her husband love him, whether they're going to keep him or not because of the trauma that he experienced as a young boy. And then on the other side of the sandbox, there were these figures, and he kept dumping sand. He was, he was burying these figures, and so she starts engaging with him and asking him, like, what's, what's going on here? This is kind of how others view you. He goes, well, there's a lot of secrets, and I, have to, I, I, can't, I can't tell people the secrets. Because if I tell people the secrets, I'm going to have to find a new home. 
Think about that story with my friend Deshaun and how he was believing that his behavior dictated whether he was worthy of love or not. And his parents are saying, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. You are ours. We have adopted you. You belong to us. We love you unconditionally, but he doesn't understand it. He doesn't understand it. And how many times when we look at this text that we have obtained an inheritance, an inheritance. God has lavished blessings on us. He's adopted us into his family, but we live like spiritual orphans because we don't believe it. We think God's love is dictated on our behavior. We started to see that Deshaun's security was based on his behavior. Where is your security? Where's your security found? And for me, um, it's not like I can just pinpoint, oh, my security is found here. I would say God, right? Like, like that's the right answer to say. But then when stuff starts happening and the wheels start falling off and I start going, oh, I was actually putting my security here because of these circumstances. And God reorients my, reorients my heart to say, you need to put your security in me. We have an inheritance. We've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That should change the way we live, that that's the only security we really need to hold on to is the security of Jesus because everything else will be broken in your life. We live in a broken world, and if you're anxious and you're worried about your kids going to school not to be sick, there's no guarantees they're going to be safe. But there's a guarantee in Christ. If you're in him, if your inheritance, if your security is in him, deeply rooted in that truth, you live differently. You live free. So that's what we need to hold on to, men and women. We need to hold on to the security in Jesus. And if you're not in him, if you haven't made that decision for Christ, if you would say, I'm not a Christian, none of this stuff is true of you. You don't have an inheritance of God. You have an inheritance of Adam. And our hope would be that you would find security, inheritance in Christ, that you would make that decision to walk with Jesus because it's the most freest place to live. He loves us so much. Just like our friend, listen, Deshaun, I love you. I love you. You have to continue to reorient your mind. It's Romans 12, not being conformed to the pattern of the world, but being I'm transformed by the renewing of your mind. I have to continue to tell myself my security is in Christ. My inheritance is in Christ. That's where I am rooted. Because if not, it's going to be a really, really hard go, men and women. And so let's stick there where our security has to be found in that. Hold tight to that. Hold tight to Christ. And I mean, that's not even correct theologically. It's Him holding tight to you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your goodness to us. As we continue to believe lies about how you view us if we're in you, 
Strip us of those lies, God. I pray you would retrain our minds, our hearts. That would be rooted in that love. We wouldn't be fearful of the way we act or live, but we would live in freedom because our inheritance is in you because of your love for us. I pray for the men and women here that they haven't made a decision for Christ, God, that you would be doing something in their heart that they would be thinking, why am I even here? That they would talk to who brought them, that they would make that decision to trust Jesus with their life. And in so, everything would change for them, for your glory. God, we need you for this. We need to be rooted and grounded in you. We love you. And we trust you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.